I call myself a survivor of the uh, Canadian, you know, branch of the MK Ultra program. At age four, I was placed in um, experiments at McGill University under Dr. Ewan Cameron who's pretty notorious, many people, you know, who study MKUltra, he always gets talked about because they say his experiments at McGill University were the, the worst. Before we get into the show, I want to share with you the Z-Stack, a powerful immunity-building vitamin pack formulated by Dr. Zelenko, the founder of the Zelenko Protocol. Many of you may have seen my interview with Dr. Zelenko explaining how the combination of quercetin and vitamin C together is a powerful zinc ionophore gun which delivers zinc, the bullet, into the cell where the virus is. Zinc blocks the virus from getting into the cell. Quercetin and vitamin C together are a safe over-the-counter alternative to hydroxychloroquine. Access to this is needed when government restricts and bans effective treatments. Also, it has been established that high normal levels of vitamin D is important for warding off sickness and staying out of the hospital. With the dangers of the COVID shot, we need a strong immune system to keep from getting sick. The danger is getting sick. That's when the effects of the bioweapon shot takes over. The Z-Stack will provide you with a defensive weapon to fight a potential virus. You can see the studies and also buy yours today at the link below or at sarahwestall.com under shop. I also highly recommend C60 gel caps, daily zeolite detox, and my probiotic greens to maintain a healthy body, all of which you can get at my shop at sarahwestall.com under shop. Welcome to Business Game Changers. I'm Sarah Westall. I hope you are all staying sane. There's so much disinformation out there. We just need some time to ourselves to be at peace, walk your dogs, or be by yourself in nature, take some time to meditate, and realize that this too shall pass and humanity will be stronger. More and more people are waking up and fighting back. The resistance is getting overwhelming for them, and they're trying to beat the clock before before more people die from this vaccine that they've gotten. I know people hate hearing the word vaccine, the jab, the shot, their death treatment. In order to not die, you can't get sick. I asked Dr. Zelenko, what is the best thing to do if you've gotten it? And he says, just don't get sick because your own immune system is going to attack you. You know, in the animal trials, the first thing that happens is that it actually does reduce infection. And at first it works a little bit, then it wanes. And then when the animals get reinfected, that's when their body attacks them and they die. So if there's any animal studies, look and see if they live. If you happen to find a study, look and see if they went to that end point where they got reinfected again. That's when they all die. So the most important thing is not to get sick. And that's why I've been promoting the Z-Stack. I'm trying to save as many lives as possible. We all have loved ones that have gotten the shot. My parents, oh my God, I had a niece that told my parents they're going to die if they don't get the shot. And they were, you know, into 
It's because she was scared. She's young. She was brainwashed. And then they scared my parents. And next thing I know, they got the shot. I was so, I was mad for weeks and they knew I was. And so anyways, now they're taking the Z-Stack. I got a whole year supply for them. I also have them on C60. In the Z-Stack, he has vitamin C. And the reason he has vitamin C in there is to deal with inflammation and build your immune system. And C60 works hundreds of times better than vitamin C. So I have them on C60 as well. And the reason I have them on the Z-Stack is because it's like hydroxychloroquine or ivermectin. The quercetin gets the zinc. The zinc is the important thing. It gets into the cell and blocks any virus because it doesn't matter what they get at this point. It's not, COVID isn't relevant. Getting a cold, getting anything that will cause your immune system to attack you. So it doesn't have to be COVID or whatever. It It's just getting sick, getting a normal, regular cold will do the trick. So they have to keep from getting sick. There are promising treatments that are coming. There is hope. Like we talked about, I have strategies that we put together with Dr. Joe. It's up on my website and we'll keep updating it, but it's really solid right now. And we'll keep updating it uh, as we figure out ways to reverse the damage of this vaccine. And But there's hope. Sherry Edwards has identified all the spike proteins, and she keeps identifying more. But it's pretty complete. People who understand RIFE technology and frequency technology have figured out how to neutralize or or in the process of figuring out how to neutralize these spike proteins. There's other people who are figuring out how to neutralize it with natural supplements we're making progress. There is hope. And then we'll we'll be figuring out how to reverse it. So keep your loved ones alive and then keep your ears and learning open so that you can access the tools to reverse this as well. I have been a crazy woman trying to figure this out and getting the best stuff out there for people. And there's others like me and we will overcome. This will be something we can do together. So please have, have hope. And, but though now that you know your job is to talk to other people that have been vaccinated, have got this death jab and help them figure out how not to get sick. Tell them worst case, you just won't get sick. If I'm wrong and this vaccine that you got isn't going to kill you, <laughs> no, it sounds terrible, but it's true, isn't going to kill you, then at least you won't get sick this winter and keep them alive. I'm working, I'm doing everything I can. I know in a job situation, it's hard, but for those around you that you love, you got to do it. You got to clear your conscience and at least try. I know it. I know it's hard and I know what it's like to be considered a whack job for, by a lot of people. Trust me, I am the expert at knowing what that's about. So just join the party and clear your conscience. Anyways, this show, I have Ann Diamond come to the program. She's a survivor of MK Ultra, and she's also an award-winning writer. She's for fiction and nonfiction, but she her books and uh, fiction have won awards. She wrote a book called My Cold War that talks about her story, and she has been so gracious to allow that for my Ebonier members, so you can read all about her story. And also, she did an exclusive for us. And that will be aired on sarahwestall.tv and on Ebonier. And it's about this school in Canada. I guess it's, they did a documentary on the school. She believes it was a school that was trying to perfect creating psychopaths and 
pedophiles and they're just terrible. And, but they didn't view it that way, the documentary, because it was presented differently. And they had schools like that all around the country. So anyways, she stays after a talk about this school and what it was really about. And then we have a link to that documentary. But the reason why I want to bring people on that have MK Ultra backgrounds is because they've been perfecting this crap, these tests on how to manipulate humanity for decades now. And that's what we're seeing play out in front of us right now. So it has a lot of value to understand these survivors and what they went through because of how they're, they're using all that on us now. She's a typical survivor where she can't remember everything. She's, she tried, she, that's what her, her book is about. But the bad memories, the really awful ones, she, her mind won't let her go there. And we talk about whether that's good or bad. This is just a fantastic, interesting interview because she's a good storyteller. So I hope you enjoy how she talks about it. We don't get into the really, really nasty stuff. But yet she talks about how she remembers being with the Rolling Stones and, and other people. And it's just a, a very interesting story she tells. So let's get into that now with Survivor Anne Diamond. Hi, Anne. Welcome to the program. Hi, Sarah. Thank you for having me. I, you know, I need to thank you that you have the courage to come out and you to talk to people and to share some pretty hard things that have happened in your past. But I think it's important for people to understand the level of evil that we're dealing with uh, in this current reality that we're in, you know, with the reset, with the the, you know, the vaccines, the fact that they could actually implement genocide. You know, we saw the Nazis, you know, the stories on the Nazis and the mass murder and the hundred, you know, Mao killed a hundred million people and same with Lenin. But it's hard for people to get their head wrapped around that anybody could wipe out billions of people and actually want to do that. But when you, when I have talked to people like you who have survived these monsters, it gives people a better idea of the psychosis of these people. So can we start first and give people an overview of what your background is? Sure. And, and interrupt me if I, you know, if I get off or go on too long. Well, but basically, yeah, basically, um, I am, um, I call myself a survivor of the uh, Canadian you know, a branch of the MK Ultra program because I grew up in Montreal. Um, my uh, in the in the Cold War in the it was born in 1951, and I was the child of parents who had military and I think intelligence connections. So, and of course, they never told me that or my twin brother either. You know, so we we grew up in a kind of a 50s. Um, you know, uh, uh, I don't know, uh, Truman Show. Well, just a kind of a, a, a very typical, uh, attempting to be very typical family. And uh, as at age four, I was placed in um, experiments at McGill University under Dr. Ewan Cameron, who's pretty notorious. Many people, you know, who study MKUltra, he always gets talked about because they say his experiments at McGill University were the the worst 
they, they often say that. I don't know if they really were, but they often mm-hmm. say mm-hmm. that. And, and maybe you uh, can share. He would go ahead. Go, yeah. Oh no, go ahead. Ask me anything. <laughs> no, I was going to say maybe you can share some of that, and you were just ready to do that. So could, please keep going. Oh, I can talk. I tell you about this, but um, um, anyway, but I, I I grew up as a ch- at four. I was um. I was basically, I was put in an ambulance. I had pneumonia. It was the middle of a very cold winter in Montreal. And they put me in the back of an ambulance and were taking me down to the hospital because I couldn't breathe. And so in the ambulance, a mask was put over my nose and mouth and it wasn't oxygen. I have a very clear memory of that. You know, it wasn't oxygen. It was some kind of gas. Mm. And I pulled it off and the attendant who was not a nice guy at all, put it back on my face and I passed out. And what I know is that I woke up a week, two weeks later. I mean, I became conscious again that I, of being in a, in a ward with other children and I had survived pneumonia supposedly, but, and my mother was not allowed to see me and so on. So this is how it all started. And when she came, she found me strapped to the bed and delirious and I didn't recognize her. Mm. So what had happened to me, I found a file uh, this was 1955, and I had, I had a, an, I had at one point a psychiatry file, dated 1955, with my name on it for that hospital, um, but it had been emptied. Um, I saw it a few years ago, but they wouldn't give it to me. It was empty. Um, I so I became, to my knowledge, I mean, what I've been, what I have researched, and so on. I was the, I was a child subject um, among many others in Montreal, uh, from the same kind, often from the same kinds of circumstances, middle-class families, uh, children were, were kind of chosen. And then the parents were told we were special. Mm-hmm. And, uh, also with us were some orphans and Aboriginal children and that sort of, it was a project and we were the children uh, and one of the later it became sub project 68, which people can look up. It's one of the MK ultra um, programs that uh, of the, of the, I forget 175 sub projects. And I think there were more um, sub project 68 was the one uh, at McGill with Dr. Cameron. And it was in uh, studying hypnosis, sensory isolation, and um, drugs. <laughs> so we were subjected to, and I think a lot of electroshock. Hmm. So this was, this was my childhood, but I want, I, I will quickly add that I had no knowledge and neither did my parents really know that this was what was happening to me on the surface. Um, I was a normal kid who'd been to the hospital, came home, went back to school, d- did well at school, but well behaved and you know had uh no noticeable at least to my knowledge problems you know traits of being abused like this so my my parents were told a story and i just believed i was a normal kid a bit brighter than average therefore i was given privileges and and um i was taken out of school a lot and um, my report card shows that I, in one year, in second grade, I missed 100 days out of 200. And what I think is that they were, according to other things I've learned, is they were taking me out of school and bringing me down town to McGill, where I was at a mental hospital 
and was the kind of little, the little, uh, one of the littlest children in this program that included adults and all kind, well, all kinds of stuff was going on. It, it's completely bizarre, and I had no knowledge of any of this, and neither really my parents were told different stories. I was in a gifted program. I was, you know, and so on. And um, how long did it go on for? How so long? You started when you were four, the big event when you, but how long did yeah. it, did it last? Well, you know, that depends a little bit. Um, I don't sure you ever really get out. It's a bit like you're in the mafia and you can't get out. You know, mm. you, they don't really let you go, but uh, I would say that it, um, in, I was in one elementary school where I think it was, I, it was easy to ship me downtown from there. And I had a, oh, it's a long, you know, it gets into these details, but where I, I believe that at that elementary school, I was easily accessed and brought, you know, and taken out of school. And that's where I had a very bad attendance record, you know, 100 days out of mm -hmm. 200 missing, right? Um, and with childhood illnesses in there, but 100 days, you know, and um so other children, I think, in that school also, and one, at least one girl that I knew definitely was at the hospital with me. The It's called the Allen Memorial, and she has a photo of herself. And she knows, uh, you know, at age 11 in her hospital room, and she knows she was sent there when her parents were short of money and was experimented on. And she's very psychic and very gifted in her own way, you know, so she she kind of fits in, she fit in very well. But then in, in fourth grade, I was sent to another school in a more, in a neighborhood where I don't think they could, different school board. And I think that's when things started to change. I wasn't, um, I wasn't so accessed. And I think my parents, my father was beginning to realize um, some of the things that were happening with, with me. I think they included uh, that I was prostituted as a child in the early years, like around age eight, you know, and I think that my parents were unaware because they were not, you know, they were not cult people. They were not secret society people. They were kind of normal mm -hmm. and, and innocent, you know, clueless a little bit. Yeah. They never imagined that the, like so many people right now, that's the problem. They never imagined that, that the authorities, the government would do this. So what, I know that you said earlier that you started to regain some of your memories and started to learn more about what happened to you. What have you learned? Oh, uh, well, recently I've learned a whole different <laughs> set of, I've learned about uh, more what was done to me. Um, it's it's a whole different you see, I, I wrote a whole book about this. I wrote a memoir and I first started off calling it My Cold War and then I and then I shortened it and it has a different title. And I, I, mainly I really wrote about my family and what was happening to my family because I had, I had no memories really. And that was about 15 years ago. At that point, I had researched a lot and I knew enough to know that I'd been in it because, you know, I'd been in this program because I'd met people in my life who told me that I was in it and they knew me. 
from McGill, but I've never been to McGill. <laughs> I went to another university. They said, oh, I know you're from McGill. <laughs> well, okay. But that's because as a child, I was at McGill University as, you know, as a five-year-old, mm-hmm. eight-year-old, you know, but so, but, but piecing it all together, I didn't have a clear idea until recently that what, uh, what actually more detail, I, um, my dad was a musician and he was an Air Force intelligence officer and he was a troop entertainer and then after and during the Second World War in Canada. And after the war he found he got work as a high school music teacher and he taught in three different Montreal high schools. He knew people in the jazz scene in Montreal like famous musicians like Oscar Peterson. Mhm. I don't know if you know who that is, but, you know, and Maynard Ferguson. And uh, they're sort of like big names in Canadian jazz. And they were just starting out at that time when my father came and was part of this Air Force, also music entertainment, because entertainers are often involved in intelligence work, especially, I think, Air Force. But anyway, and Air Force people are very connected in with MKUltra. It's very much an Air Force program, you know, something that they came through electronics and communications. And my father was in, had been in the Signals Corps probably, you know, monitoring Nazi uh, communications during the war that he had great hearing, you know, and so that's the background for that. And I've, I have through my life had connections with people in the music business, but I'm not a musician. So I've just been, you know, so I, Okay. Recently, I started having flashbacks um, to having known some uh, rock stars. And because the British, especially through the British um, section of the of the Air Force, the Tavistock Institute, you probably have heard yeah. of, was connected right in with Gill. See, so... So as the daughter of an Air Force intelligence officer and musician, musical music teacher and, you know, someone connected in with that world where they were getting into recording and mind control in the mid-50s, that's when they started pushing rock and roll and pushing electronic music to a generation. It was all about trauma, post-war uh, you know, getting getting out of the war, getting into peacetime, and you had in England this traumatized generation. Well, they became the rock stars, you know, like the, the Rolling Stones, the Beatles, the Who. Mm-hmm. Yep. You know, those big bands are really all about trauma. So, were were yeah. you introduced to them as a child? Do you remember them? Yeah, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, well. Yes and no, because I met them later. Okay. And um, I didn't, and they, it's a long story. I met some well-known musicians um, later who seemed to know me. Mm. That made no sense to me. Well, the reason they knew me, I figured out. I mean, you know, they, they seemed to know me and I had a long uh, series of interactions with them. I'm not talking... <laughs> I'm not talking romantic, sexual, but there was some a little bit of, you know, that sort of aura to it. But it was um, more that they just knew who, they just kind of knew me. Uh, and I 
but they'd known me as a child. How do you know it wasn't sexual? And, and after, after 20 years. How do what? you know there was? Oh, it could have been. I okay, just, that's that's fair. It could have been. Yeah. I mean, you know, in the sense that everything is in a mm-hmm. way, you know, when you're men and women and all that, you know, flirtation and yeah, sometimes a little bit of that, but more of an, uh, that's not what I did. You know, I didn't really do sex for a living. I have a feeling I was a writer and a, and a journalist, right? That's what I'd become. But I have a feeling that I possibly as a child was being groomed. I have a strong feeling that I was being groomed for a career as a, as some sort of, uh, you know, they say the monarch, yep. you know, the monarch sex slaves yep. and so on. I think I was in that. Uh, my parents would have completely, you know, they would not have allowed it. And I think that's one reason. I mean, some parents enabled those things in their daughters and their children. They they thought it was fine, you know, like uh, Courtney Love's father trafficked her, yeah. you know, and, and later. And, you know, and I think it was uh, ambitious parents. They would and they have a daughter. I mean, they may not really think it's such a bad thing for her to. But I just was not the type of I just wasn't right for it. And also, um, yeah, my parents would never have allowed it. They were not that type. You, so what, what ended up happening to you then? So you did all these experiments but do you think that well an example i think i was going being put through the the experiments i was being put through were things like um photographic memory memorization uh esp that they were doing with those kids in in that sub project um you know they were elect and i think i was frequently electroshocked um that was part of the that's why I wouldn't have no I didn't know I was in the project because they would wipe our minds they would wipe our memories after every session they'd either give us LSD and a candy like little kids or electroshock so they know how to wipe your memories and that's what you've learned too is that you're you believe yeah I've learned that I have that you know I used to joke about amnesia I used to think that was very interesting and I wrote about amnesia you know like I thought amnesia was such an interesting topic well it's because I I think I am completely in many ways I have been completely amnesiac Mm. for I would say half of my life I think I had an alternate career and life that began in childhood and I'm not sure when it stopped, um, maybe in my 20s, maybe later, maybe earlier, but I, you know, but of which I was totally unaware. It just was not me. It wasn't my personality. It wasn't what I was doing. But but in fact, I was living a second life when they would take me out of first grade, second grade and bring me downtown. I had a career going in in a I think I was traveling around in limousines, going to parties, getting photographed, things like that. So do you yeah. have pictures of you so, as a younger person? I Very few, almost none. I cannot find photographs of myself. And I'm, I, I'm not sure, but I think I was absent for a lot of family gatherings. I just wasn't there because I was busy elsewhere. You know, I was employed. Um, I was earning money as a child. For my family. I mean, you know, all of this. But frankly, 10 years ago, I I wouldn't have said any of this. I wouldn't have really known it. Um, 
I've had recent, you know, uh, what's the word? I've, people have told, different things have happened, including flashbacks. I'll give you an example of a flashback, okay, of me at 12. It came only a few months ago, so I, I you know, um, suddenly <laughs> I, I'm in London and it's 1963 and I'm 12 years old and I'm, I have a duffel bag full of um, track and field clothes, tra sweaty track clothes. That's all I've got to wear. I've landed in Chelsea. I'm staying in a very dirty apartment with, this, with these young rock stars, although they're not famous yet. And um, and there's nowhere to wash or do laundry and and I, and so they dress me up in um, baby doll pajamas, such a like the ones Mary Quant was and popularizing in 19. I've researched yeah, it, so I yeah. know this now. 1963, and I walk down the street, uh, and I'm in London and meeting all these people, and I'm 12, but I look 16 because I'm tall, you know. Yeah, and I've got a scarf around my head, and so on because my hair—I can't wash my hair—and I'm—and um, it's very hot, and you know, it's a, it's June. Anyway, I end up at the university. Uh, things happen there, and so on, and, and then I wake up. Okay, this is a few months ago. So what I did was research around those wh what day that what dates those that would have been generally June. London, England, very hot. That's why I can't wear my clothes that I've have come with me from Canada. I have to wear baby doll pajamas because it's, you know, 80, 80, 85 degrees or something, and very unusually hot. I researched the weather in London. I find those two days, and uh, in, in the early part of June, um, it's the 6th and the 7th of June. It was unusually hot. The rest of the month was cool and rainy. And I find out which rock band launched its first signal a single on the on the, those days and that's the band that i was with which was what one you was know? it <laughs> the rolling stones really yeah so do you remember so, if anything happened to you with them or were they just using you um, go ahead um it seemed very friendly and very nice i was just there i was a girl I had landed there. I think I was there under the auspices of McGill University. I've spoke with a friend who I went to I was 12. We were 12 together and we were in sixth grade. I said, what about track and field in June? We used to have these track and field meets. And she and I both could remember the track and field meets of 1962 and 1964, but 1963 was a mystery. But she said, um, she had no ribbons or anything that she'd won because normally she won all the ribbons, but she didn't have any for 60, 1963, which is so, okay. And she, but she does remember it was at this um, uh, home. up. Um, we went to this place up north of Montreal in the, in the Laurentians where people go in the summer, where there was a, where it was a, a reform school connected to McGill University now I know from my research, I've known for years, it's connected with child trafficking and with the MK Ultra program. I just know that. And she said, that's where we went that year. And she has no memory of anything. I don't 
remember anything. I remember the, the year before and the year after. I remember those events. But it's as if I was taken from the event, drugged or something, put on a plane, sent to London under the auspices of, I suspect, you know, Tavistock, McGill, the, the, the rock and roll, the beginning of the rock and roll phenomenon, you know, the yep. British invasion phenomenon that was happening in London. And I, I picked up the atmosphere of that as in this dream that was so vivid, walking down the street, you know, and these people just coming forward in their clothes and what they were wearing and how excited they were to be young in 1963 in London and feeling, you know, you could, and all of that was so vivid. So then um, it seems it can, you know, I can, I can, um, what's the word? I can verify it to a certain extent, you know, it's, Anyway, that's an example. I have others that are a little more personal. but Yeah, and I'd like to hear some more examples. But do you think that those rock stars were also part of the Tavistock Institute and also were, you know, in experiments like you? Or do you think they were just naturally, you know, worked their way up to be rock stars? A bit of both. I think they, I think they were chosen because they, they truly had something very special that I don't, uh, you know, I wouldn't deny or like denigrate it or anything. Sure. I think that they they were destined in some ways, but how far would they have gotten, you know, in the real world without the? I think they got help, and I think it was the organized, you know, through the recording industry, the studios, and so on. At the time, they were looking for certain things. They knew certain people were would sell and were obviously very exciting. I don't think the excitement was faked. I think the excitement around the Beatles and the Stones and the other bands so on was very real. I think they were very genuine artists. I believe that, but they were made, you know, they signed deals and then, and they had to go where they were sent. You know, they weren't really their own people in many ways. And the managers um, were, uh, well, for example, the Stones manager, who actually, uh, who who was in that flashback I had, and that's when I woke up. Um, the manager uh, was an Air Force, another Air Force brat, you know, and connected in with the whole entertainment uh, scene. Even though he was very young, he was very smart about business, and and I think probably himself taking orders from, you know. Uh, it had something to do with the Air Force, and then the which, which I know connects into MK Ultra, because the the recording student studio EMI that began became so important in launching these these bands and so on uh, was a uh, very high tech electronic you know studio, but it was military owned you know and and worked together with the BBC. I mean in, in uh, uh, pushing what you know what became the British invasion invasion so started in London with American music that they took and you know black music that they loved so much and that they turned into something new I mean the and then they brought it over to America where it was used as part of the 60s you know um, what, what do you, you know, believe whatever happened psychedelic yeah you believe yeah. it was trauma-based and everything else what do you mean by that the music was trauma-based and what they were trying to do with that. I think that the bands themselves, it's like I was particularly understood this when watching a couple of movies about The Who, 
which was not a band that I particularly relayed ever liked. I mean, I because I think I was a little bit even old for the Who in a way I was past my. But anyway, you know, when they, I just thought of them as the band that likes to bust up their equipment on stage and make a lot of noise, you know. And then they did Tommy, and you know, it was about this deaf, blind, and dumb kid, right? Who was obviously about a a handicapped, traumatized child. Well, that was, you know, that was them. <laughs> that was um, Roger Daltrey. And, you know, they were talking about themselves. And it was in seeing a couple of very amazing documentaries about them that I realized there was, uh, there was nothing phony about it. They, they had grown up, they'd been born and grown up in London with bombs falling on the houses around them, the people getting killed. They were living, you know, and then after the war, when Germany was being rebuilt by the Marshall Plan and the United States and becoming rich again, um, you know, on its way to become very powerful economically, England lagged behind and there was no future for these, for these war babies. And so they just gravitated to, to music and it was violent and it was, you know, rock music that, you know, the, the mods and the rockers and so on. It was a very violent, um, scene and they were they were living and their parents meanwhile would not talk to them about the war so you know or about what they'd been through but there was a lot of domestic violence there was a lot of it was just a very heavy world that they were desperate to get out of and so the music became a vehicle to express the trauma and also you know if they could succeed at it then they could you know have have jobs without really having jobs you know so that was the sure oh yeah. yeah and they brought it over to the united states they brought it over to the united states was that you know we all remember that yeah what do you believe the air forces and the mk alter program related to this rock and roll invasion what do you think their goal was what was the agenda well they you know going back to 1945 and after the war and the Nuremberg trials and all those, you know, and then Mengele being, you know, Dr. Mengele being captured and released and, you know, they took all his files. The U.S. military, mm -hmm. is, from my research, they, they, they actually got Mengele's trauma-based, trauma mind control research that's what they were looking for they they through the psychiatrists who were over in canada and on the england and i guess in the states some of them were already working in similar in a similar vein to the nazi psychiatrists and doctors like mengala uh, on trauma because they saw it as the key to brainwashing and mind control so they wanted mengala's files and they got them as far as i know and they've never released them. And the CIA, you know, he became an asset of the CIA. So what the Air Force was um, closely involved because of the electronic, you know, uh, all that electronic um, surveillance and so on that they were in the technology they were bringing out. It was a lot of it was sound based. The, the, you know, the, the idea you could, you could entrain people, you could control people through sound. They were very involved in that. That's why they like musicians you know, we're very sophisticated about sound and how it can be used and what the effect is of sound. So they could take, so I think they thought the music was the way, that, okay, 
here's an example. I'll just, this is much more. <laughs> it ties into Sherry, it ties into Sherry Edwards work where, you know, frequency and sound. And I've done a lot of shows on frequency and sound and how that affects us. But you have, yeah. yeah. And so this is really right up the alley of what we've done, but this is great because this is another side of it that we haven't heard about. Maybe, yeah, maybe a little bit of extra, for, you know, you probably know so much <laughs> more than I do even, Eve. But um, um, Dr. Cameron actually would speak and write about rock and roll. This is even on Wikipedia. If you just have to Google, you know, Dr. Ewan Cameron and get his Wikipedia you know, profile and all that, it says Dr. Cameron saw rock and roll music as a way to spread mental illness to a whole generation. Literally he said that. Now, because you know, he was a psychiatrist and, and, the, and people thought of him as a doctor who was healing people and curing schizophrenia and, you know, making, making great uh, cutting edge, you know, what, doing, doing great research into schizophrenia. But he was also learning how to create, mainly I think he was learning how to create schizophrenia because creating schizophrenic people split personalities, Manchurian candidates, that was, there was much more money in that, or, I mean, there was military funding in that. They wanted, you know, they wanted to learn how to manipulate humans, split off parts of their personalities, make them controllable, and that's the whole basis of the, uh, of MKUltra. In a way, that's the whole, you know, Manchurian candidate idea that Alan Dulles would also, you know, CIA was, they were very interested in that. So Dr. Cameron said, we can take musicians who are mentally ill and through the, and and you know through the music they create they will spread mental illness to to all their audience mm. and he was interested in that they they wanted they really wanted to make people sick just as we're seeing today with covid the whole you know that's how it kind of ties in do you see the trauma that they're, they're creating a lot of fear? You know, CNN would have the death or the cases and the death numbers playing on their screen constantly, 24 hours a day, um, just really trying. Now, do you see a tie-in of that trauma-based research that you went through to what they are doing now with COVID? Oh, absolutely. With a whole different generation or a whole different, you know, set of people, some of them are old enough, they're my age or older and should know, you know, they should know better. But obviously most people have never really learned to see through, most people, I mean, a lot of people have never learned to see through these agendas. So they they continue, you know, to be divided, you know, divided from, you know, to yeah. blame the non-vaxxed for, you know, and the conspiracy theorists are really the evil, you know, ones who are, you know, spreading misinformation. That's how so many people still think because they've never um, separated from, you know, their trust from, for authority is just so intact. And, and it's just a blind trust. So, yeah, I, I see. I mean, I, you know, I haven't been able to watch TV since I was a teenager. I, I, I have a hard time watching any television, but I, but I, and I do recognize that it's brainwashing, entrainment, you know, mind control. It, it just affects me in a very, uh, all of it negative way. Almost. Well, occasionally I'll see good things on TV. Often it's with someone else present. I, you know, I can't cope with it alone. 
<laughs> I can't turn it on and just watch it. But if someone else is there and there's a program we want to watch, yeah, I'll enjoy it, you know. Well, a, a lot of the television shows and things that you see, uh, pr programs that you actually went through and they're just putting it through to to the masses? I don't really, you know, I don't know because I don't, I don't watch it closely enough. I can tell you a funny story, though, about my, at one point when I was 14, I was addicted to um, a television series called The Man From U.N.C.L.E., and all of my girlfriends were also completely addicted. I mean, we were just crazy about it. And I've since, and we watched it every week. And, you know, um, this was the same year that, you know, the Beatles and the Stones came into, you know, so the man from uncle was like the third thing that we got crazy about. And I, you can, you can um, download, you can watch old episodes on YouTube. So I can watch all the episodes that I saw in that year when I was 14, 13, 14. I know that, and I can see that, the, that whoever was writing those episodes had to have had milit either military background or knowledge of the MKUltra program because the contents things like Nazi doctors reanimated, spreading poisons. Uh, in 1964, right, that, that was the kind of content weekly that we watched. And, uh, you know, international spying and, uh, you know, Russia and America, you know, working together. There's definitely there was a New World Order um, agenda in that program. Um, and uh, it's it's just really obvious to me now. Oh, one of the people who wrote for it was Robert Town, and he's the screenwriter of Chinatown, right? Mm -hmm. I think I've got that right. Yeah. So he's a brilliant. He was a young screenwriter at the time, and he went on to write you know great American films. But but he's cut his teeth with Man from Uncle, a few early episodes. Some of the best ones were written by him. And um, I he had to have had inside, you know. There had to have been CIA people in on that program as I watch it now. And I think actually we were being in some ways programmed by it, you know? Yeah. Okay. Well, now that you're older and you have spent a lot more time trying to understand your life and what actually happened to you, what are some of the experiences that you think that impacted you the most? I mean, what are you learning? As I mean, you've already shared some with us, but what else are you learning that is kind of reshaped what you think of yourself today thanks <laughs> i don't know <laughs> i don't know the answer to that what am i learning um <laughs> there's so much really um so i've really detached myself quite a lot from i uh, i can't really say that i'm in a big learning phase right now but i did a, i did go through a period of going to conferences and meeting people who were survivors of these programs and, and meeting people who said they'd met Dr. Mengele. And, you know, I was very immersed in it for at least 10 years and writing about it. Um, these, and I, I think I said before we started, I mean, I, these days I'm mostly interested in trying to understand me, like how was I um, impacted myself as a child and I see now and how did how did this affect my family and I've been very slow you know strangely 
there were, where I should have had memories of my family, where I should have had like conflicts and arguments and memories of, you know, fights and so on, or, 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 or beautiful moments with my family, or I had nothing, just a kind of a, an empty, mm. there was just a blank. I just wanted to get away. Um, and, and live my own life, whatever that was going to be. Like in my late teens, I, when I was 19, I finally did leave home. But now I'm going back and I'm really, uh, the last few months or last couple of years in particular, I've been trying to piece together the timeline of my childhood adolescence in much in, in actual, you know, what happened. And it's hard <laughs> to get it, you know, to, to know. I, I remember certain things you know, that happened. Um, I, so one of the things I've re- I've realized is that I had a boyfriend and they, uh, and they split that relationship, you know, I, and they, and they, and I didn't even, and they made me forget that I had had that relationship. And this would have been like when I was nine, 10, 11, 12, at 14, um, they, uh, it, it's, it, I I recovered a memory of of this boy coming, this young man at the time coming to see me and asking me to marry him. And uh, at that point, I was already too uh, mind controlled to really even to to be able to respond to him. And the response that what they did to me, they made me completely forget. So these memories have come back to me recently as these as recovered memories, as flashbacks. I mean, that's you know. I can't prove it, but I have these vivid, I have now some vivid recall of what I, like I said, I was living a separate existence in which I was, you know, I knew all these people. I was, you know, partying in mansions, you know, whatever. I had a boyfriend when I was a girl, you know, before puberty. In fact, that boy would have married me. My parents, I guess, freaked out. Anyway, the hospital, you know, moved in on it and they wiped all of my memories, all of them, and started me over at a new school with new friends with a whole different, and restarted me. And they were going to send me to work for the United Nations. They were grooming me for a career in some, you know, what a global, globalist sort of political whatever. And, uh, you know, I, I never figured it out until I, frankly, I, I never figured it out until recently and began to see, you know, how my family had been in many ways blackmailed, forced into, you know, going along with this program, which I, at, you know, by the time I was 19, 20, I totally had rebelled and I joined the revolution. And, you know, I was doing everything possible to not be successful in, you know, the world that they had, you know, that's the most important thing that I've learned recently. I've learned other things. too. Do you think that a lot of people who are, did you think there's a lot of people out there who have been groomed by the globalists that are running different various programs or doing? Yeah. And do you see patterns of behavior that makes you think that? Yeah, I do. Yeah. Um, I think most of the people I, I worked for a while in, in journalism and media. I was not very successful because I wouldn't follow orders. So I was seen as a, as a troublemaker quite early on, although my personality is very sweet, you know, and, and so I got a certain way with it. And, but everyone I met inside those, inside those circles is completely controlled. 
Mm. I, you know, it takes a while to figure it all out. But do you think they but eventually you do? Did they go through the same type of programming that you did, or do you think they just? I think they did. Okay. And when you're talking, they. I think they did. I mean, I suspect they did. They don't. I don't think they remember. I think, like me, they had no mem. They have no memory of it. I've met a couple of people. You know, for example, I know a journalist in Montreal who got cancer and suddenly started because trauma revives trauma. So it's at at her at fifty, she was basically working for the same newspaper and took took over the column that I almost had, you know, that at that newspaper that I refused, she she became their second page, page two writer and so on. And for years she was quite successful and and completely going along with everything. And suddenly she got cancer and then she suddenly began recovering memories of being tortured at McGill by famous doctors. And um, then she began trying to talk to a therapist about it. And they, so they gave her, they, they said it's psychosis and they started drugging her and so on. But I've met with her many times and, you know, she, her memories are very specific and about children. She saw children murdered and she had absolutely horrific memories that began coming back to her. But she was an exception because she fell, you know, she fell through the cracks. She got sick. Mm. most just continue and I don't think they ever recover those and what do you do if you have memories like that I mean they just all it does is get you diagnosed as psychotic yeah yeah and shun you know they move what I've noticed is well anyway I don't want to get too specific but in the city where I was finally kind of worked as a journalist it was not easy they wouldn't take local people to work for the local newspaper they would take people from out west from these distant prairie towns where there were very intensive MK Ultra programs going on out in the prairies and the hospitals that they never really talk about but it's it is sort of known that they were they were doing the same drug and you know experiments out on in Saskatchewan and Manitoba and Alberta as in Montreal but Montreal became the notorious you know MK Ultra hub that's now in all the documentaries and so on. When you look at documentaries on MK Ultra, very, oh, very often Montreal is, you know, very. It's it's because they. That's a way to um, to focus on one place and then you know you know uh, scapegoat one city, one group of doctors. But there were many more doing the same thing. So they would. Many of the journalists that I knew in Montreal who had positions, you know, that for life, were from those prairie places because then they could take them in their 20s when they're young and ambitious and bring them into a new city where they don't know anything and then say okay you write about this place you tell people here what their history is well the population of montreal could have awoken much more quickly to it you know it, it, to its history of having been guinea pigs thousands of people in the city were guinea pigs of of those psychiatrists at mcgill and were it became then later you know either they died or they were, they committed suicide. They became lifelong mental patients or some were promoted and became collaborators, you know, but, but, um, you know, they, they, it's so the media who did invest heavily in this program. I mean, their names are on plaques at the hospitals, the owners of the media empires and the newspaper empires and so on were heavily involved in investing in mind control. So all of it, when you look, you know, that's 
my research brought me there, and that's what I end up seeing is that there, it's it's a completely it's a club. Canada is smaller and more, you know, claustrophobic, way more claustrophobic than the United States. But a lot was done here for that very reason, and a very passive population, you know, that just very slow to figure out and f what their rights are, you know, and and fight for them. And I think that Canada, what's going on with COVID is because they're pretty much ground zero for a lot of stuff, it seems like. I mean, they're just getting, it's, it's really bad for them. Yeah. So are you... you it's, it's New World Order hundred no, times 10, times 100, yeah. Yeah, it's really bad in Canada. So now, do you feel fortunate that you don't remember some of the more horrific memories? Or do you think that your your brain is just pushing them aside? Um, fortunate. I, I was told, you know, I started this research about 20 years ago when I, I sort of woke up to the fact that my family had been deeply involved in this program and that we, we'd been victims of it and so on. So then I started researching and I was told early on by people who were further, had much deeper and worse experiences, I would think, I, I would say. Um, they, they warned me not to not to go get hypnotized to recover memories because the memories could be so horrific that they would that I wouldn't have a life after that. I, I wouldn't even be able to function. They said that could happen. So it's not worth it. And they said it's it's if you're okay and you're managing, you know, why would you want to? And uh, for some people, it happens. The memories come back spontaneously, and they're. They're flooded and then they, they they just can't get unflooded. They're just stuck reliving. Sometimes they have a videographic mm -hmm. recall that just keeps playing to them. And, you know, so mm -hmm. I, frankly, I'm pretty, I have a lot of barriers and I'm not that gifted, you know, in that way. I just found everything, I found everything out mainly through research. But now that I'm starting, I have had a few flashbacks recently. I had had some earlier on too. Um, but now I think also some of the beautiful parts of my life have been taken from me. So I might be ready. I think some, I might be ready now to open up. You know, I'm 70 now. It's not as though I have to push <laughs> go anywhere, push myself into, you know, public, you know, yeah, I can yeah. do what I want, you know? Exactly. Absolutely. I don't know. I, I'd say it's 50, 50. Yeah, I can understand that. Sometimes it's just better to be ignorant in some of those things. I, I would I would understand that. Um, I don't think it's better to be ignorant if it being ignorant makes you a victim. I think you need to learn enough so that you yeah. aren't a victim and that we can overcome things. But sometimes having learning the memories and being able to just playing some of those awful things in your head over and over wouldn't help you. So why? But were you look did you were you a tall blonde model looking I mean, so you were just a beautiful young woman, strawberry blonde, but you know, I mean, I, um, uh, yeah, I was tall, skinny. I had the look, I guess, but I didn't know it. Mm -hmm. And, uh, I, you know, I just thought of myself as this scrawny, which I was, you know, this tall, scrawny kid. I, I, um, if I'd worked on it, I could have been pretty stunning, I think. <laughs> you know, but I had to work on it and I wouldn't, it wouldn't just come, sure. you know, that type of look, you know? So, and, and some girls really did work on themselves, but I didn't, I was always like often, you know, I, I books. You know? <laughs> 
that's that's great. And and, and talking about books, you've written quite a few. Can you tell people where they can find your books and learn more about your writing? Because that's what you do. You write. And that's where I found you. I saw a blog on a school that I want you to talk about for my members. It was a school for children where they did some experiments on children up in Canada. And I, and you did some writing on that. And I was hoping we could talk about that for our members. But your writing was so interesting that I wanted to bring you on. Oh, thank you. <laughs> I, you know, I find writing is getting even harder lately. <laughs> but I'm, I'm, I intend to keep doing it. Um, yeah, I, I wrote a memoir, like I was saying, I started off in 2003 and I wrote a memoir called My Cold War. That same year, someone in San Francisco wrote a book called My Cold War. I mean, it came out and won a prize. You know, that seems to be just the story of my life. So um, so I, I was writing, then I started writing a blog. And the blog you saw was about a school, uh, that blog post, Um about a school in Toronto called Warrendale, which um, I, yeah. yeah, which I had known about. I mean, I was interested in it even as a teenager because it was really being heavily promoted uh, to young people and uh, people in the social sciences and you know helping professions as an uh, just a shining example of uh, progressive youth uh, care. You know, young. Uh, care homes and it was it just wasn't it was a horrific sadistic yeah <laughs> yeah 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 and that's what I want to talk about for my members and just to really dive into that because your view of that is more in depth and, and more enlightening and so where can they find your blog posts and buy some of your books okay where, where do you have that online yes yeah. you can just kind of you could google my name and diamond a n n D-I-A-M-O-N-D, um, and then a title like um, Anne Diamond MK Ultra would probably bring up, um, or My Cold War. Um, my blog is called Mother of Darkness, and also, so if you were to Google Mother of Darkness Anne Diamond, I think it would come up with my, just bring up my blog. I can give you the, I could give you the URL and you could put it in at the end of this or something. You know. Yes, I'll, I'll put it in. Thank you. Yeah, I'll have it so people can have it. But thank you so much, Anne, for joining us. I know it's always difficult to um, really share some of these things, but you have come so far and uh, you should be proud and you can help so many people. So thank you so much. Oh, that's so nice of you to say that. <laughs> I love to hear that. And thank you for inviting me on because I've really enjoyed it. 